0: Good afternoon, Friday afternoon. It's uh, 4.34 and a half and it is uh, great to have you with us and thank you very much for listening as you uh, finish up your week one way or another. And some of you may have already finished it last night and headed for somewhere else as we approach a holiday weekend where some people took today. Uh, It was a PD day, which I thought was a curious coincidence. Uh, And of course, Monday for many, not all is a holiday. And uh, 4.35 means it's time to have our uh, smart speakers of the day join us. And uh, they are in no particular order, certainly Alphabetical. Genevieve Tomney, who's a principal at GT and Co. Bruce Arthur, a columnist for the Toronto Star, and Aaron Morrison, a longtime political strategist and now principal at Morrison Communications. Good afternoon to you all. Oh, hi, John. How's hi, everybody? Joe. Everybody all right? Hi there. Good. Uh, so. Uh, a lot of things in the news today, and some of them more serious issues than others, but uh, one that um, I think has been a real a frustration for people living in Leslieville, and I should mention because I sat in the mayor's chair and we had the same frustration at, at Dundas and Young, is uh, people frustrated at the lack of action on some of the consequences of having uh, supervised injection sites. Now, I made the plea earlier on today and took a lot of calls on this, that the last thing we should be doing is abolishing these because they're saving lives and they are uh, providing uh, some support and help for people who have among the worst issues they'll ever face in their lives. Uh, But at the same time, I do understand the frustration of those who would say that they've faced some degree of um, uh, mayhem in their own communities because of the existence of these uh, sites. Uh, Bruce, I'll go to you first uh, and just ask you, you know, is there a balance to be achieved here where we should do better with these but not
1: uh, end up in a situation where the answer becomes to do away with them? I mean, the problem with doing away with them, John, is that the, the problem doesn't go away. Right. If anything, what you get is you get more dead people on the streets. Right. Um, you get less safe drug use. You get more debris from drugs in terms of needles. Like as someone who grew up in Vancouver, I, that was where some of the first supervised injection sites mm-hmm. in Canada happened. And they've been, for for the, for the in, in a large way, huge successes. And the problem is, is they don't fix everything because nothing does. Um, But just saying that we don't want this, that we don't want this in our community. um, Again, you have to think about what will actually result from that. And again, it doesn't solve the problems that people think that it will solve, um, because we have a toxic overdose crisis and a homelessness crisis in our society. We need to figure out how to actually endorse treatments and solutions that work. Supervised injection does.
0: And, and fund uh, treatments that
1: work too. Genevieve, mm-hmm. uh, we
0: lost in the city of Toronto in 2022, 600 people uh, to drug overdose deaths. And you know, that was, for example, the homicides were in the 80s. Uh, pedestrian deaths, not minimizing any of these, were in the 40s. And we lost 600 people to drug overdoses. And I don't think the people who are complaining are insensitive. I think they, are, they would be horrified if they knew those numbers, but they're just saying you got to do a better job because we're experiencing uh, a lot of mayhem in our neighborhoods uh, because one of these is close by us.
2: Yeah, so I know, you know, kind of personally that this has been really, really difficult for the community. We have close family um, with young kids who live literally right where this happened, and it has been so distressing for them in the months since then. And I think we see this happen so often where... Something terrible happens in a community and it sparks really necessary and important conversations about what we need to do systemically to be better. And that was the case in this case with respect to safe consumption sites. And then, the media cycle moves on. And it's only the people who are left in the community who are pounding the drum going, hey, don't forget about us. Don't forget about this problem that we have. So I can understand the frustration that's coming from them. And what we have here is, unfortunately, a provincial government that's ragging the puck on all of this. Because yes, to Bruce's points, it's a tough and a complex issue to navigate. And you're going to end up making people angry one way or another, no matter what you decide. And we know that that's something that this premier is allergic to, wants everybody to love him. And so making a tough decision like this um, is just not happening. And I think that just increases the pain and the suffering and the distress that yeah. that's going on. In you America know, right I now.
0: think you make a good point there. But I, but I knew as, look, I wasn't always, uh, you know, uh, I was guilty myself sometimes of postponing decisions. I i have mentioned before that my political mentor, Premier Bill Davis, who some won't even remember his name, but he used to sometimes say or we'd kid him about it, never put off until tomorrow what you might be able to put off altogether. But on something oh. like like this it, it's taking <laughs> hundreds of lives and I stood behind these and said we had to do better outside if we could but I stood behind them because Aaron and I just thought it was the right thing to do knowing full well there were a lot of people who would say close them tomorrow and, and that you just had to sort of sometimes stand up and say no this is a measure that's not the answer as Bruce says but it's an answer to help save lives in the meantime.
3: Yeah, that's right. Because the alternative is unthinkable, as Bruce pointed out. We don't we don't cure anybody of addiction by shutting down a consumption and treatment site and sending them out into the street. The end result of that is even more mums and dads finding their child overdosed alone in the street and nobody wants that nobody wants that even the people who uh you know are uh struggling with the existence of a consumption and treatment site in their neighborhood they don't want that either so I think this is a provincial government issue and they they um, they really treat it like they have two options, you know, restrict and underfund or shut them down. And neither option is going to work for communities. What we need to see, I think, is properly funded consumption and treatment sites that do not have to struggle so hard to control what's going on around them, that can that can handle uh, the, the, you know, keeping things tidy, that can handle the volume of clients that they see, and that can offer other services, which might be social work services, which might be housing services, and which might be uh, an offer when somebody's ready. To uh, head into detox and treatment,
0: I think that's a very balanced answer with which I agree, but hard to achieve. It's it's a challenge. It's a big challenge. Let's uh, move on. Uh, I was being cynical earlier today, but not because I was you know causing myself to be cynical on purpose, but I just you know read earlier on as a number of us did when it came across the news that the imp- Im- imprisoned. Let's start with that. The imprisoned Russian opposition leader, so he went to jail because he was the opposition leader. Alexei Navalny uh, died, and they said, oh, you know, the guy was just out for a walk on a nice winter day, and the ULAG, which is where they sent him, uh, and he just happened to not feel well and collapsed and died. And, I, you know, I, look, I, I don't know any more than anybody else as yet, but I just have to believe, based on the track record of people with poison-tipped umbrellas and so on, that this is just one more reason why, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin is a bad man and why, uh, Aaron, he has to be uh, held in check when it comes to something like Ukraine. What's your thought?
3: Yeah. <laughs> um- the detention of Alexei Navalny was incredibly disturbing. The attempted murder of him uh, before he returned to Russia was disturbing. I, I mean, this this story all across the board is just absolutely horrific. Something that's really catching my attention today is the reports of Russian police arresting people who had tried to like lay flowers or pay pay respects uh, at the news of Navalny's death and inside russia we know people are subject to propaganda misinformation disinformation and i feel like i just keep waiting for the moment when a critical mass of russians say hey wait a minute this isn't right this isn't arresting us for laying flowers is not right uh you know the story you're telling about the, the invasion of ukraine doesn't doesn't add up and I don't don't know that today's the day, but I do
0: hope that this is another step towards that critical mass. Jean-Pierre, comments on a sad event no matter how it ended up happening?
2: Yeah, I mean, was there ever any other kind of ending to this story, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's been evident so many times over that standing up to Vladimir Putin is a death sentence. So, yeah, we may never really know the true cause of death, but I think it's fair to make a correlation here. And, you know, this is a brave person and, you know, kind of a, a bit of a figurehead for the west as well to have been able to take on putin as vocally and publicly and for frankly as long as he was able to do um and so i'm with aaron like the question is what impact does this have russia right now we know is monumentally fractured over the war um there's about to be another election where putin is likely to become So-called leader election. for another six years, right? So-called election, <laughs> right. Um, and so my biggest question is, does the death of a figurehead like him, like someone who's lo- so larger than life that his documentary won an Academy Award last year, um, does it give rise to a bigger dissident movement? Um, Or, which I fear is more likely, does it just lead to to further fear and and further silence?
0: Yeah. Now, Bruce, where do you come down on that? We just got a minute before we take a break,
1: uh, whether it'll lead to sort of a galvanizing moment or whether it'll actually lead people to feel further oppressed. I think it depends on the West, John. I think it depends mm-hmm. mostly on Trump's uh, election or not election uh, later this year. Um, and also to a degree, I guess, what happens in Canada, if you look at the statement that Pierre Poilievre put out about this today, it was so dishwasher week that I, I dishwa- dishwater week that I, I was I wasn't shocked, but I was still surprised. Um, there is a sympathy towards Russia among some part of the Western conservative Uh, political establishment and it's and it's growing and it's really dangerous and if trump becomes president again then the whole idea of nato the whole idea of holding putin to account in any way mostly vanishes in western society um and that's just one of the things that's on the table so that's i think what's going to make the difference the fact is putin chose to kill Navalny now right like he could have done it any time in the last two or three years um and the fact that he did it now—that's the question I'd really like answered, as to as to why now and what does he see out there? Yeah, and you know, thank God we don't really have to be worried
0: about this, and you don't ever want to be, which I guess is the point. But if, if Pierre Poliev, who's the official opposition leader, was locked up, uh, you know, even just locked up, let alone killed—I mean, I think we'd probably, you know, he would take <laughs> perhaps a different view, to say the least. Now I'm making light of anything here. Uh, we're talking to our smart speakers: Jean Pierre Tomney, Bruce Arthur, and Aaron Morrison. We'll be back with them in just a moment, and I'm going to ask them if they've seen any sign whatsoever that landline phones are making a comeback. We were talking about that. And then maybe move into the school closures during COVID. Uh, Bruce certainly wrote a lot about COVID back in the day and we'll talk about that with our smart speakers. It's 4.45. John Tory here with you on The Rush, joined uh, as we are at this time of uh, the day every day by our smart speakers who today are jean Tomney Tomny, a principal at GT Company, Bruce Arthur, Toronto Star columnist, and Aaron Morrison, a longtime political strategist and principal now at Morrison Comms. Uh, so I'd like to move on to uh, talk t- uh, to you or ask you about something I was talking about, and I've seen no sign of this, but that doesn't mean when there are articles written up they're not true. But they said there's a comeback in landline phones that is uh, uh, on the part of Gen Z people because they think they look cool. I might be I might be inclined to think that's the reason, but I've heard none of this. In fact, I still face considerable mockery for the fact that I would even uh, think of using one. But do any of you, uh, jean pierre starting with you, do any of you hear any <laughs> About this big comeback of landline phones?
2: No, I laughed so hard when I heard this because anybody who has ever actually experienced using a landline phone and then you compare that to, you know, just the amazing technology we have right now would never, ever want to go back to it. Although I do, like, I get the nostalgia. I get, you know, And, like, I think somebody said something about twirling the cord around your finger. Like, it does kind of, you know, throw back to those 80s rom-coms that we all kind of grew up on and love. Um, But if I had a choice, like, let's do a poll here. Does anybody on this um, program right now have a landline in their house?
0: I don't even have one. (laughs) No. No. Do you no, know? No, but, Aaron, Bruce, no. So it's you us. No, but I'm strong. Even I'm strongly considering doesn't have one. <laughs> what do you say, Bruce? Sorry about that.
1: I am actually strongly considering one, partly because I have four kids uh, between the ages of 14 and 8. And the eldest two do have cell phones, and the youngest two don't. I'd like to have one number that I can call in my house or that other people can call in my house and you can maybe get any of them. Um, And part of that is maybe nostalgia, but part of it is just a practicality. I don't think it's an either or is the thing. Right. Um, And I have as much nostalgia as someone who grew up with one of those black bell phones, like the, the rotating. Yeah. The dial, you
0: dial them. Yeah. Dial phone
1: Um, where if you had friends whose number had a nine in it, you're like, Oh my gosh, it's so much work to dial. Um, (laughs) But I think that the comeback, if it, if it is accompanied by fewer kids having cell phones, I don't think that'll happen, but imagine that. It would actually be a societally positive thing if we can reintroduce home phones instead of cell phones. Karen, no, what I'm this is dreaming. gonna
2: be is if people are gonna have um, a little cable that they can plug into the bottom of their iPhone that makes it feel like a landline so that they have
3: that cord. <laughs> that's what that's we're what, that's totally. gonna do go Yeah, <laughs> absolutely.
0: My goodness. I, I, I'm I, not, um... I don't get any of this, but nonetheless. <laughs>
3: I don't have a landline folks, but I just love that all the 2000s trends are coming back. Like I don't have to change at all. I can stay exactly the way I was 20 years ago and eventually trends will just like circle back to me. So I'm cool again for a little while. You're
0: all younger than me, but this just proves that things never change because that's what happens as you get older and older. You don't want things to change if you can possibly avoid it. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: Um, Let's go on to something a little more serious uh, and I'm going to turn to you first, Bruce, because during COVID when I was sitting in the mayor's chair and managing a very difficult uh, pandemic, your column was must reading every day and and uh, it had many different opinions and a lot of different work that you had done. And there's a report out now written by a McMaster academic saying school closures may not have been necessary or as necessary or as many of them for as long to prevent the spread of COVID. And I will just tell you, sitting there, we didn't know for sure. And there was a lot of pressure coming from a lot of different quarters. But do you think this is a 2020 hindsight or is it actually maybe a valid uh, you know, statement of concern after the fact?
1: Well I think you have to look really carefully at the study John, and Thank you for your kind words on that. It it basically shows that before Delta, before the Delta wave, um masking and vaccination were the things that helped restrain uh transmission in schools. And that is something that I've I've talked to a lot of different scientists over time and they came to that conclusion. The problem is once you got to Delta with a higher infectiousness level and once you got to Omicron, which was a different game entirely, that's when schools had a different effect on transmission, but it's also where transmission was just running wild everywhere. I mean, the key factor here is that the, it wasn't just opening or closing schools. It was what safety mm-hmm. measures you take in the school. So there's going to be some people who say we should never close schools again. And you can make an argument for that, although I think it's a really nuanced and long, long running argument. Um, but the fact is that masks helped and vaccination helped. And that is something that, at this point, for some people, is still an argument. Yeah, be.
0: and I can tell you, the three of you and everybody listening, that as we sat there, it became clearer and clearer as each day passed that all the things we talked about, whether it was, you know, wiping things down, washing hands, I mean, they were all helpful in their own way, and, and masks and so forth. The number one thing we had to do was get people vaccinated, and that, in and of itself, is very controversial and was, but in the end, we achieved vaccination rates that were the envy of the world and and, and had a much better mortality rate. But I'll move on to you, Jean-Pierre, and just say, do you think we, We, meaning those who are entrusted with these decisions and we collectively overdid it on the school closures, uh, you know, given what we did and did not know at that time.
2: You know, I really do think and and I do believe and look, I have I have two little kids who were right in the thick of it. Like my family was ground zero for you know having young children who should have been in kindergarten at home crawling all over us while we tried to work remotely. But I really do believe that that our leaders did the best with the information that they had at the time. I do truly believe that. And I agree with Bruce that I think this actually ended up really being an endorsement of of masking um and a vaccination. And you know, I'll talk with friends now. Um our kids are a little bit older and we'll think wistfully back at the time um you know when our kids were home. Mm-hmm. And we weren't, you know, getting pink eye and the flu every other week like we are now that our kids are back in school. So, you know, I really do think that 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 leaders were, were doing the best with the information that they had. We're doing the best to try and keep our kids safe. I truly believe there are some lasting impacts from this that are difficult and are going to be hard for the education system and for our kids to overcome. Um, but again, I think the takeaway from this is that the vaccination worked, the masking worked, and those were two really important things.
0: Yeah, I'll write it up in my book uh, in due course, but I can tell you at the beginning, I mean, <laughs> people said the masks were useless and you shouldn't bother with them and so forth and so on. And I even, you know, a very professional opinion was out there saying that, and then it became necessary. And it's just a whole series of things that came from really not knowing what to do about this uh, in terms of easy answers. Aaron, uh, did w- what was, was the school closure business uh, overdone, or do you think maybe it turned out to be as right as it could be?
3: Now, nah, overdone. I agree with you and Jen that we didn't know everything. The whole world was learning together how best to deal with the virus. But we did at the time hear from experts Schools need to be the last to close and the first to open. And what did the province of Ontario do? They made them the first to close and the last to open. And in, in, in my recollection, the only thing that closed faster was the NBA games. So we had our kids at home for what was it, guys? Like 182 school days, 109, a school million days, something
0: school like days. That. It felt like. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, no offense like, to the kids.
3: Here's they. It did damage. It did damage. Kids suffered. Their mental health suffered. Their development suffered. Like, folks, we all know kids who are struggling with eating disorders or uh, other issues because of the interruption to their development at that time. And so, honestly, we knew better and we didn't prioritize the kids when we should have. And when I say we, I mean the provincial government. I mean, let's be honest here it was their call, it was the Minister of Education's call, it was the Premier's call. And we do, we still do know better now. And what we know is that vaccines help. And it is mandatory that your child gets a, a chickenpox vaccine and all kinds of other vaccines before they are allowed to register for public school in mm. Ontario. And it is not mandatory that they get their COVID vaccine. So I'd like to, I'd like to see us incorporate a little bit more of this learning rather than just put this uh, report on the shelf.
0: I literally have 15 seconds for each of you to comment on whether it's uh, you think it's going to end differently uh, if the freedom moves. Movement- Movement, so-called, which has had that convoy and the sort of occupation in Ottawa, uh, comes back to Parliament Hill, which they say they're planning on doing. Is that gonna end better than the last time, uh, jean I
2: think if it happens, it's going to look very different. I think so many lessons have been learned. I think that the city will be better prepared um, and it will be sort of a little bit more organized chaos than the type of um, that's, that's good situation that
1: Organized time. chaos. Bruce, do you think that's what it'll be, but better than last time? Also, smaller because there are a lot of people who have moved on. The Freedom Convoy people are not among those people. Exactly. Aaron?
3: Now, well, we know we can't use the Emergencies Act this time, so we better get it together on the front end.
0: That's a really good comment. Uh, planning is uh, the essence. We planned, uh, well, the police service did here in Toronto, and and frankly, yeah, that's why we didn't have a problem, because they really did plan. I was eyewitness to it, and it was extraordinary, the planning they did. Thank you all very much, jean we Tom Nee, Bruce Arthur, Aaron Morrison, our smart speakers. Uh, and uh, we'll be back after we check in on the news at 5 o'clock, and we're going to talk then about the school closures and whether you think it was necessary uh, to have them closed for as long as they were uh, to prevent the Spread of COVID. That's here on News Talk 1010. John Tory on the rush.